You're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Thomas Berceau, president of the National Lipid Association, and I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Larry Kaskill and presented by the National Lipid Association. Cardiometabolic risk simply includes a series of cardiovascular factors and a series of metabolic risk factors. Less easy to determine is exactly what we can do that will effectively and efficiently reduce this risk. Let's take a look at what is working as well as the areas where we can make some more progress towards suppressing the drivers of cardiovascular and metabolic diseases. My guest today is Dr. Carol Watson, Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles, David Geffen School of Medicine, and Director of the UCLA Cholesterol and Lipid Management Center. Dr. Watson, welcome to Lipid Luminations. Well, thank you for having me. So tell me a little bit about the risk reduction program you have, how it came about, when you started it, and what you're what you're trying to do. Well, we have had a lipid clinic for years. We've had a hypertension clinic for years. And we realized recently that it just doesn't make sense to have two separate entities looking after really what tend to be a overlapping patient population. Patients who have hypertension often have hyperlipidemia. Patients who have hypertension and hyperlipidemia often have obesity. The patients who have all three of those often have diabetes or the metabolic syndrome. And so there's so much overlap in all of these that we decided we really should look at them all in an integrated manner. Kind of wrap them into one wrapper, one place, one-stop shopping. Right, exactly. So, so many of them have so many of the same complaints, issues, problems, and things that we can deal with all together. And it helps them and it helps us. So I think we've really come across something good. So over the last, let's say, 10 years, have you seen a shift in terms of who really is your target audience? You know, in the old days, it used to just be this this tough guy, this smoker who just ate meat and potatoes and had a high LDL. And, and now it seems like, you know, pretty much everybody has a high LDL and it's not really, doesn't really, if you look at who goes into the hospital with a heart attack, half of them have a high LDL, half of them don't. So who, who are you targeting now? Right. So what we see now is the whole nature of cardiovascular disease, heart disease has shifted. So just as you say, in the 50s, you could say, it was a meat and potatoes kind of heart attack that people were having. So they didn't have much obesity. They didn't have much diabetes. But, man, they loved their steak. They loved their pot roast. They loved their sausages. And, and they came in with cholesterol through the roof, and, and then they had the heart attack. We don't see that anymore. There's a, a lot of, for a lot of reasons, cholesterol levels have declined, albeit they're still too high for most of us. But the average cholesterol in someone who's destined to have a heart attack is exactly the same as the average cholesterol in someone who's never going to get a heart attack. So it's really almost impossible to tell on those bases. But we can differentiate the two groups on the basis of HDL cholesterol. HDL is the healthful cholesterol. If you have a low HDL, you're much more likely to have a heart attack. And the patient population we're seeing now in our heart attack population are really a low HDL a very high triglyceride, another lipid particle, and an obese population, something that we really weren't seeing a lot of in the 50s. All right. So how much of this do you think is due to what we're hearing about in the news pretty much every day, and that is high fructose corn syrup and the increase in the amount of sugar that is in our diet that obviously contributes to high triglycerides and low HDL, and it could be potentially that that meat and potato guy was really getting affected by his potatoes more than his meat. Oh, good questions. Well, it turns out that, I mean, high fructose corn syrup is a very, very cheap, 
easy, readily available of simple carbohydrates and calories. So that's what the problem with high fructose corn syrup is. There's nothing chemically wrong with it. It's not in and of itself terrible, but because it's so cheap, so plentiful, and really put in every single thing we eat, we're getting so much of it. It used to be that if our caveman ancestors wanted to eat a 1,000 calories, they had to run and hunt and chase and kill, and they burned 1,000 calories before they ate 1,000 calories. And now we just go to 7-Eleven. We can get one supersized Coke and have 1,000 calories. So it's, high fructose corn syrup allows us that convenience. So high fructose corn, the excess abundance of easy, cheap calories is a big problem. Uh, I heard on NPR the other day that Pepsi now has come out with a product that has natural sugar, cane sugar, instead of the high fructose corn syrup. And so they're marketing this as a more healthy alternative, just to kind of see, put it out as a trial balloon, see if the uh, population will like that or, or choose that again. Do you think it doesn't really matter where the sugar's coming from because sugar is sugar and the, and the calories are calories? I think exactly what you said is true. If it is the equivalent number of calories and if it's, you can suck it down in the equivalently short time, it's going to be just as bad. So back to the risk factors that go along with a new potential heart attack waiting to happen. If I heard you correctly, you said that the LDL is losing a little bit of its power, HDL is gaining. So the last NLA meeting, uh, one of the audience members asked a question. He said, listen, every week someone's coming out with a new risk factor, and we're finding out that this risk factor actually is a better predictor than the old risk factors, but we never get rid of the old risk factors, and we keep piling on and piling on instead of replacing some of our old baggage and eliminating it and just focusing on what we now know is more important. Any ideas on what we can do about that? turns out that a lot of our old risk factors were really, really good. Most of our cardiovascular risk factors were discovered from large, very well-designed epidemiologic studies like the Framingham Heart Study, which really did for the first time show us that, hey, smoking's bad. Hey, high blood pressure, that's bad. Hey, high cholesterol, that's bad. So we're refining some of them, and you can get some with a little bit of additional incremental value, but in general, don't get me wrong, basic risk factors are quite good. And in fact, we're doing so bad at controlling most of our basic risk factors that then to start parsing them out and arguing amongst ourselves over this one, which might be 5% better, is really probably not the best use of our time or energy. We really should focus on the big elephant sitting in our living room, which is obesity, diabetes, insulin resistance, and all the attendant metabolic risk factors that go along with those things. All right, I got to tell you about a patient I saw. True story. Came in because he decided, so I was a lipidologist, decided he wants to change his life. And he's got a triglyceride of 800 and an HDL of 35. His LDL's fine. And he drinks two cases of beer a week and he smokes two packs of cigarettes a day. And he wants me to just, you know, mix around his medicines and, and make everything better. And, you know, this is an extremely difficult patient. And so I said, listen, before I mess with your lipids, Nothing's going to be as powerful in terms of an outcome as having you quit smoking. So you have to do that first. I'm not going to mess with your lipids until you quit smoking. And then when you do that, we can quit drinking. And it's just... And the good news is when he quits smoking, his HDL will go up. Right. And when he quits drinking, his triglycerides right. will go down. Right. And his HDL exactly. will go up. And he won't need that much medicine from me. But, you know, it's very hard to change those things. So what do you do, Dr. Carol Watson, at the new center that uh, helps address those issues? It's a comprehensive program. So 
myself, the dietitian, the nurses, everybody's involved. And we do use medication when we need to, but as you so very <laughs> rightly point out, so many of these cardiometabolic risk factors can be modified with lifestyle. And in fact, lifestyle is more powerful than drugs in some of these cases. So I joke to my husband that my job is basically getting people to do what they don't want to do and to stop doing what they do want to do. So I have to convince people to alter their lifestyle. Right. Who knew that that's what we'd be doing when we went to med school? You know, I know a few years ago you were excited about a new medicine that didn't come out, and I may pronounce it wrong. It's either Ramonabant or Ramonabant. I've heard both, yes. And so that was, you know, supposed to help, obviously, decrease obesity and all the, you know, subsequent abnormal lipids that go along with that. And it didn't happen in the States. But I'm wondering if, if you have followed the story outside of the States and what's happened. Well, I can tell you, it has never been approved by the FDA, so it's not available in the United States. And actually, in many of the countries in Europe, which had approved it unconditionally at the start of it, they've now pulled back some of that approval. They've either disapproved it now or put severe limitations on it. And it turns out this endocannabinoid receptor antagonist, which is what Ramonabant was, it was a drug that blocked the endocannabinoid receptor, which was the receptor that caused many of the positive beneficial effects of cannabis, marijuana. It turns out that one of the side effects of that happy euphoric feeling was also that you wanted to eat a lot, and some people call them munchies. So if you block that, the thought was maybe we could stop some of those adverse effects like wanting to eat a lot. The problem with blocking that receptor was it seemed to possibly block some of the beneficial effects too, like that feeling of calm and well-being that people got. So there turned out to be some increased incidence of psychiatric side effects, um, which is why many countries have, have pulled back on its approval. But it did teach us a lot. It taught us a whole lot. And part of what it taught us is why is it so darn hard to get people to lose weight? Some of those pleasure centers are wrapped up in other things like eating is pleasurable, makes me feel good, makes me calm, and they're very, very interrelated. So sometimes when we just say, oh, just stop eating, it's not that simple. So we have to think of a whole new, I think, non-pharmacologic way of getting to all of those pathways and getting people to, to eat less while still eliciting some of those other rewards that they used to get from food. Right, but yet the drug companies are still chasing this holy grail, and I, I don't know which company bought another company that has a, a pill out there that mimics caloric restriction. And so that's the new holy grail. And that's what America is asking for. It's right. like your patient you just saw. Where's my pill? I don't want to stop smoking. I, want to, I don't want to stop drinking. So we do know that caloric restriction works. Absolutely. And people that restrict their calories live longer. Absolutely. And they live healthier. Absolutely. And so how does the, the program you're involved in kind of help patients restrict their calories yet not be hungry throughout the day? I mean, there are many things you can do. There are a lot of different food choices that people make every day which don't make their life better but add a lot of calories. So, for instance, eating, drinking full-fat milk, for instance, you might for a couple of weeks miss your full-fat milk, but pretty soon you'll be just fine with non-fat milk. Diet soda versus regular soda, just simple things like that. And we talk about food choices. So, of course, we're all going to want something that we shouldn't have every now and then. If we do take it, that's fine, but we have to remember to subtract those calories the next day or the, the day after that. If we do that, we'll be fine. We just can't continue day after day to keep piling on the excess calories without even thinking about the future consequences. 
What would you tell someone listening to the show who doesn't have access to a academic setting to set up a cardiometabolic risk reduction center? How can they do it in their office? Well, I think a lot of what we do is just common sense, and it's kind of the common sense approach to cardiology. So there are plenty of resources out there, and and in fact, some of the resources that are available through the National Lipid Association, which helped us set up this program, are available via their website. So I would probably start my search there. When I have a patient whose belly walks into the room before them, it's pretty easy for me to diagnose them with metabolic syndrome. Are there some outliers out there that we wouldn't think of having cardiometabolic syndrome, perhaps in other ethnic groups that you could shed some light on that may not look like the typical? There are, and one of the populations that we've been most attuned to this in is the Asian population. And the Asian population, at a relatively low body mass index, they can have a great deal of intra-abdominal adiposity. And it really is the intra-abdominal adiposity, which is the dangerous fat, and that's the fat that we think leads to all of these adverse metabolic consequences. So even though they might look nice and thin, if you did a cross-sectional CT scan on them, you would see that their belly is packed full of fat cells, and those fat cells lead to the problems. In my practice, usually they end up presenting first with just an impaired fasting glucose, and that gives me a clue that, ah, this person might actually be metabolic. Right, and there are some other, some Asian, South Asian populations where even though they're really thin and they don't appear to have excess intra-abdominal adiposity, they still may be insulin resistant, and they're still at risk for all of those attendant problems. And I, I try and explain to them why it is that in their country they could eat all the rice they wanted, but somehow when they come to America, something happens. I haven't had a good answer to give them. Well, I mean, I think what is true is that genes develop much more slowly than lifestyles change. And, and if you have a population that was evolved in a certain genetic background for centuries, and all of a sudden, within 20 years, they rapidly migrate to a new population where you have different environment, different food, different exercise levels. I think things really take a while to catch up, and we haven't caught up with our industrialization just yet. Well, Dr. Kel Watson, I have thoroughly enjoyed having you as a guest on my show. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me, and please invite me back. My guest was Dr. Carol Watson, Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles, David Geffen School of Medicine, and we were talking about cardiometabolic risk reduction. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, visit www.lipid.org.